I appreciate the opportunity to speak at the Sunstone Theological Symposium on the pillars of my faith as a Mormon. For some people, it may seem a contradiction for me to proclaim my Mormon faith since I was excommunicated 11 months ago. I want to begin with a statement of what I am not seeking to do. First, I am not playing word games. When I say that I regard Joseph Smith as a prophet in the same way Moses was, I emphatically mean that both Joseph Smith and Moses talked with God face to face and received the words of God through a process we call revelation. When I say that I believe the gold plates of the Book of Mormon were as literal as the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, I mean that both were physical objects that could be and were touched by human beings, despite the otherworldly dimensions of these two artifacts. My faith is more literal than some are willing to credit. Second, I'm not seeking a following, quote-unquote. Aside from my hope to be regarded as sincere, even by those who disagree with me, I don't want followers. My hope is that people will follow the will of God for them, wherever that may take them. Third, I am not seeking to reform the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or to bring about changes in its policies. There are things about current LDS policies that I wish were different, but it's possible God doesn't share my point of view. If there is a need for reform or change in the LDS Church, then it is the responsibility of God's prophets, seers, and revelators to have the active faith to obtain his will, the compassion to see the pain and struggles of the least of God's children, and the courage to make needed changes. Fourth, I am not trying to portray myself as a good guy while dismissing the leaders of the church as bad guys. This includes the one or two who for years branded me as an apostate Mormon historian and sought to bring about my excommunication. I've disagreed with LDS leaders about certain matters, but I've always regarded them as better men than I've ever been. Fifth, I have researched and publicly examined problem areas of the Mormon past, but not to embarrass the current LDS church or its leadership, or to disenchant believing Mormons. I'm not a wolf in sheep's clothing, despite public relations statements to the contrary. From my essay in the Church's Ensign magazine 17 years ago on Brigham Young and the Gifts of the Spirit to the present, I've written about the silences in the Mormon past, or in the Mormon history of the Mormon past. Whatever was responsible for those silences, I felt they were worth exploring to um, end the silence about topics and developments that I thought were significant. There is remarkable diversity in the Mormon experience which I feel all people can benefit from knowing about. It is not spiritually damaging to understand the highs and lows in the experience of religious communities and churches. However, few Mormons are interested in reading their own history or in hearing academic presentations about Mormonism, except when they learn about efforts to suppress such inquiries and presentations. <laughs> LDS leaders and members alike should remember that news of a book being banned in Boston was a virtual guarantee that the book would become a bestseller. The forbidden is one thing the apathetic cannot resist. When I think of the pillars of my faith, I remember childhood and youthful experiences which define the contours of what Mormons call a testimony. For me, faith is not a statement. It is an experience. But faith is also a divine gift. I don't know why I've had the gift of faith since childhood while I have known earnest young missionaries who prayed unsuccessfully for the ability to say they know there is a God or they know, quote-unquote, Joseph Smith was a prophet. 
I can't explain why I've had faith or spiritual knowledge of some things about which others have had only hope. But I'm sure it is not a measure of personal righteousness or of God's love for a person. I'll apologize in advance for dragging you all down memory lane. Also, I'll be inflicting repeated first-person eyes on you, since some people didn't like a previous effort of mine to reduce that egotism by speaking of myself in the third person during a personal essay. Among the pillars of my faith were my Mormon heritage, my personal relationship with God and intense experiences with the divine, my conviction that God's authority and divinely appointed leaders exist in the LDS Church, my belief that God had a mission for me to perform among the Latter-day Saints, and my growing interest in Mormon history as an extension of my Mormon faith. I was born to a Catholic father of Mexican parentage and a Mormon mother of Anglo-Swiss heritage. The Prophet Joseph Smith's manuscript diary even mentioned her pioneer ancestor. My parents divorced when I was about five, and I later learned that their religious differences were part of the problem. Shortly after the divorce, I contracted polio. As my friend of the hospital, I asked that they first take me to Brother Jackman, an elderly high priest in the LDS ward. I wanted him to heal me with a priesthood blessing. Brother Jackman promised that I would recover fully from the disease and leave the hospital shortly. Although I was diagnosed with a fatal form of polio, I left the hospital after a few weeks of spinal taps and hot compresses. I remember very distinctly my LDS baptism at age eight. I felt a burning within me of what I knew was God's presence. For me, partaking of the sacrament was always a celebration of my relationship with God and Christ. When I was nine, I experienced what I regarded as divine protection when I became separated from a tour group inside the Oregon caves. As I was trying to catch up with them, all the lights went out for a demonstration of total darkness. I continued walking in the dark until I heard a quiet voice say, Stop. I started to take another step when the word was repeated with greater emphasis, stop, and very different from the voice of the tour guide in the distance that I was trying to regain. I didn't take another step. When the lights came back on, I found I'd been walking off the trail and was on the edge of a sheer drop that disappeared into further darkness even when the trail lights were on. No one in the group seemed to notice my return. Growing up in my California ward, I frequently told the monthly testimony meetings that God's priesthood spared me from polio and his voice saved me from falling to my death in the caves. Perhaps because I was such a regular testimony bearer, I grew up hearing older Mormons say that God was preparing me for important service in his church. My grandmother, who raised me, was more direct. I wouldn't be surprised, she said, if God makes you one of his apostles. It would have saved me a lot of unnecessary concern and aspiration if I'd realized then how common that sentiment is in Mormon culture. (laughs) As a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Marion G. Romney recounted his effort to motivate a full-time missionary who didn't want to get up early in the morning, didn't want to track door-to-door, didn't want to stay on his mission. Elder Romney asked, Isn't there anything that you want? The missionary replied, Yes, Brother Romney, I want to be an apostle. As far back as I can remember, I knew what it was to feel the presence of God within me, and I felt close to him as my father, comforter, and strength. But I hadn't thought much about the LDS Church itself, even though I was a seventh-generation Mormon who attended church every week. At the age of 11, I tried reading the Book of Mormon, but found it boring and confusing. Finally, I just asked God if the Book of Mormon was true and experienced the warm sensation within me that it was. 
Then with the same results, I asked if the LDS Church and its prophet were true. I felt God wanted me to show my love for him by giving service to his church and his people. By 15, I had read most of the standard works of the LDS scripture. I began a several-year project to reread them and make my own card index of Mormon-oriented passages from the Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. I loved these sacred texts and used them as my only source for every talk I gave in church. By age 17, I was also reading LDS Histories, published by Desert Book Company, but was confronted by three different challenges that year concerning Mormon history. One of my friends gave me an anti-Mormon pamphlet about changes in the Book of Mormon text. A girlfriend also gave me Samuel W. Taylor's Family Kingdom, a book about his apostle father's experience with plural marriage after the church's 1890 manifesto supposedly ended it. Also during a visit of our group of LDS friends to a nearby chapel of the reorganized church, the RLDS pastor gave us evidence, which I at first denied in the name of Jesus Christ, of Brigham Young's teaching, The Adam-God Doctrine. As a result, I read the first volume of the Journal of Discourses and found many doctrinal surprises in the teachings of President Young and other prophets, seers, and revelators of the LDS Church in early years. In the midst of my historical inquiries this year, LDS President David O. McKay dedicated our stake meeting house in California, and I witnessed his virtual reenactment of a New Testament miracle. As he and Sister McKay left the building, I followed only a step or two behind, hoping to get his autograph in my Bible. When they neared their limousine, hundreds of people were crowding around the McKays and even pushing up against them. Immediately behind me, amid the noise of the jostling crowd, I heard a woman whisper, if I can only touch him. She reached her arm past me, and her fingertips barely touched the back of President McKay's suit while he was pressed by people on all sides. Instantly, he straightened to his full height, turned around, looked at the woman behind me, and extended his arms to her. She came forward, tears streaming down her face, able only to say, My prophet, my prophet. He said, God bless you, held her hands for a moment. Kissed her forehead and turned back to help Sister McKay enter the car. I didn't think I was going to do this. Um, I knew nothing further about the woman or the incident except... I had read something remarkably similar in the book of Luke. I hope this is not a sign of things to come. In December of that year, Apostle Grand Richards came to our ward to visit his daughter and son-in-law, our bishop. I asked Elder Richards about Brigham Young's teaching of the Adam-God doctrine. He said Brigham Young was a prophet, but that as an apostle, he, LeGrand Richards, just, quote, put on the shelf some of Brigham Young's teachings that seemed difficult to understand. That sounded like an honest and sensible approach to me. Apostle Richards thought pride was the basic problem with those who continued to practice polygamy after the church officially abandoned it in 1890. I knew enough of my own pride that I could understand that as the reason for what he described as spiritual error. Satisfied with the explanation of Apostle Richards, I no longer felt concern about the manifesto or about Brigham Young's one, quote-unquote, Adam-God statement, both of which had bothered me for months. 
At age 18, I started researching other problem areas uh, of the Mormon past and typed up my own explanations within a faithfully factual context. I wrote Apostle Joseph Fielding Smith, who was then the LDS Church historian, about changes in the Book of Mormon text since 1830 and got back a cantankerous uh, reply um, that questioned my testimony. Should have seen the handwriting on the wall then, I suppose. But I just shrugged off his reaction as a personality quirk, which it was, and which I still think it is, for others in similar situations. Continue trying to understand the Mormon controversy so I could help defend the church. A year later, I entered the Los Angeles Temple to receive the endowment. I'm going to speed this up, and we're going to be here all night, and I'll keep the others late. I don't want to do that. So uh, it's machine gun delivery from this point forward, folks. I regarded it as both inspiring and intriguing. I attended the temple weekly during the the months before I began a full-time mission. While I was zone leader in England, the temple president there asked me to serve as an ordinance worker whenever I could come to the temple. With my mission president's permission, I went there with my companion whenever it was convenient. The London Temple was the first of several in which I officiated as an ordinance worker in ceremonies whose words I still remember and find inspiring. Early in this mission, I had my first experience in speaking what I regarded as revelatory words to another person. I was in the middle of routinely setting apart a woman for a position in a small branch of the church. Suddenly the words, you are accepted of the Lord, came into my mind with overwhelming power. At the same instant, I felt in the center of my being the burning sensation I have always known as the Spirit of God. I have written in Sunstone Magazine about the crisis of faith I also experienced as a young missionary while I excommunicated boys who had been deceptively baptized as part of the church's baseball baptism program. The one positive aspect of that experience was that for the first time in my life I could understand those who were unbelievers or atheists. Otherwise, the mission field was a spiritual feast to me. Partway through my mission, I also experienced the fulfillment of prophetic words expressed by Apostle Ezra Taft Benson. In Salt Lake City, Elder Benson had set me apart and several others for missionary service in England. In setting apart two of us, he said the words, I set you apart as a missionary in the British mission and any other mission to which you may be called, unquote. We, too, were also the only ones of these 10 or 12 missionaries who eventually served in more than one mission during our two-year service. In returning to Brigham Young University following that mission, I had an experience of personal revelation that would be repeated at other times in similar situations. The newly appointed bishop, Richard L. Anderson of the Religion Department, told me that all positions in the ward had already been filled, but it might be possible in a few months to call me as a substitute teacher in a class. As I left our initial meeting, the words came into my mind, you will be a counselor in the Elders Quorum Presidency next Sunday. I have no idea why I would have that thought or why, as I believe, God would bother to reveal it to me. In any case, the next Sunday, Bishop Anderson asked me to be a counselor in the Elders Quorum. While in that position, I participated in the most remarkable healing experience I ever witnessed. A diabetic student in the ward suddenly began losing his sight and within days was blind in one eye and had almost no vision in the other. Um, I was asked to join with stake presidency, bishopric, and elders presidency in giving the young man a blessing before he left campus. When I entered the room where the others were already assembled, I was overwhelmed by the burning of the spirit within me. In the priesthood administration, stake president Harold Goodman promised the young man he would regain his sight and return the next semester to study at BYU. Both promises were fulfilled. A few months later, I had the unusual experience of a non-Mormon and non-Christian asking me for a priesthood blessing. 
A Muslim graduate student at BYU fell on the ice, hit his head, and began experiencing what seemed to be symptoms of brain concussion. I offered to take him to the hospital, but he replied, no, I want you to give me one, bl- one of those blessings like your people in your religion can receive. This request startled me, but I thought to myself, why not? I regarded his faith as more important than LDS procedures, so I closed my priesthood administration to him in the name of Allah rather than Jesus Christ. I checked on him half an hour later and found that he had stopped vomiting and was free of head pain. This Muslim had no further difficulty from his head injury, and I attributed that to his faith in the God of Abraham. During my first semester back at Brigham Young University, a faithful Mormon student also shook my confidence in traditional Mormon history. One afternoon, Stephen E. Robinson, a religiously devoted freshman, confronted me in the BYU dorm with the accusation that his religion professor had willfully lied to the class that morning by claiming that anyone who married in polygamy after the manifesto was an adulterer. Quote, my grandfather was a mission president who married two plural wives in in Salt Lake City ten years after the manifesto, he said, and added that his family had a recommend signed by LDS President Joseph F. Smith for one of the marriages. I was deeply disturbed by what Steve Robinson told me about his grandfather's post-manifesto polygamous marriages. This did not fit the, the explanation Apostle Richards had given me as a teenager, and it contradicted traditional histories by B.H. Roberts and Joseph Fielding Smith. At first, I couldn't believe it and asked for his grandfather's name to check out the story. The next week, without telling him of my suspicion, I took the, bishop, uh, the bus to the LDS Genealogical Society where I found that the man had married two plural wives in 1901 and remained a mission president for almost 20 years, during which time he fathered children by all of his wives. This BYU student sent me on a quest to understand post-manifesto polygamy and every other historical claim about the LDS Church made by anti-Mormons. In the process, I found that traditional Mormon historians could, uh, were denying the existence of things or remaining silent about things that anti-Mormons could demonstrate even from Mormon sources. Among these were Brigham Young's Adam God teachings for 30 years, not just in a brief reference of one sermon. I felt that the average Mormon was vulnerable to this contrast between historical evidence and official LDS history. I was determined to get to the bottom of every historical claim made by anti-Mormons and do what traditional historians have not been doing, acknowledge all the evidence and still come up with an explanation that was both honest and reassuring for believing Mormons. During my next three years as a BYU undergraduate, I was a teaching assistant for Book of Mormon classes in the religion department, was a temple ordinance worker, and served as a guide at Salt Lake Temple Square. Each was a great experience of service. During this time, I was also reading anti-Mormon publications that used Mormon history as a weapon, and I checked every quote and citation for accuracy and context. I prayed for the Lord to guide me by his spirit to learn the truth of these matters and to know how to present them in a faithful way. Well, in the military during 1970, I had my first run-in with a church officer about Mormon history. At the suggestion of the full-time missionaries in Munich, I agreed to give them a presentation about the history of plural marriage from Joseph Smith to the post-manifesto polygamy. A few days later, the mission president invited me to his office and said that it wasn't always good to tell the truth about church history. President Orville Gunther said, quote, On more than one occasion, I've met with members of the Utah legislature and have showed them a letter from the first presidency indicating a wish that the legislature vote a particular way on certain bills. He explained that he had church authorization to do this, but showed such letters only to men he knew were loyal to the church and would know how to vote after seeing a letter of this kind. 
What I have told you is true, President Gunther said. But if you told anyone else I said this to you, I denied I ever told you such a ridiculous story, and I deny it ever happened. Up until this point, I had understood his line of argument about not volunteering information about Mormon history to investigators and new members that could injure their faith. But I was amazed that he used this story as an illustration. Nevertheless, the mission president's advice had its impact on me. I decided that I would not impose my understanding of Mormon history on church members. In all the years afterwards, I did not speak about Mormon history in sermons or Sunday school lessons unless the ward bishop specifically asked me to do so. It was a decade before I would even talk about Mormon history during firesides at private homes, and again only when asked to do so by the host. Otherwise, my texts and topics came from the scriptures alone. During my three-year service in the U.S. military, I also made the transition from planning on a career in English literature to wanting to be a professionally trained historian of the Mormon past. While in the military, I read and prepared my own indexes of the, of the six-volume Comprehensive History of the Church, the 26-volume Journal of Discourses, and also the four published volumes of testimony in the U.S. Senate's investigation from 1904 to 1907 of the Mormon Church and Post-Manifesto Polygamy. My former bishop, Richard L. Anderson, arranged for BYU's library to send these volumes to me in Germany. In our frequent correspondence of 1969 to 70, Professor Anderson wrote that his research in early Mormonism did not have any controversies like my research in post-manifesto polygamy. Years later, I think we both saw the irony when I published Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. I prayed almost daily for God to give me hidden knowledge of Mormonism when I got out of the military. I specifically prayed for access to the documents of the LDS Church that would give me understanding of the internal operations of the Mormon hierarchy and particularly about the activities of the general authorities regarding polygamy. Amazingly, that's what happened when I started graduate study in history. In 1971, I began researching manuscripts of the LDS archives, a month after my return to Salt Lake City from the Army to begin studying history at the University of Utah. My graduate advisor, Davis Bitten, employed me to research hundreds of diaries in the LDS Church Historian's Office. As newly appointed church historian, Apostle Howard W. Hunter opened up the LDS archives to researchers, and I sat next to non-Mormons who were examining files of the First Presidency. I was sure that God was providing the way for me to understand the deep things of the Mormon past and that this was somehow part of my mission to his church. During this time, I was also a Sunday school teacher, temple worker, and guide on Temple Square. From 1972 onward, Leonard Arrington, then the official church historian, encouraged me to publish Mormon history and to become a professional. My acceptance at Yale University in 1973 was beyond any of my youthful dreams. However, that year I wanted to be free of an aspiration that had dogged me since childhood. At the April 1973 general priesthood meeting, I laughed spontaneously at Elder Romney's story about the lazy missionary who wanted to be an apostle, but I was embarrassed at how closely it applied to me. I thought that if anyone, anything and anyone could release me from my oppressive sense of mission, it would be for the president of the Quorum of the Twelve to solemnly tell me that I was completely wrong to think of becoming a Mormon apostle. A couple of months later, I managed to get an appointment with Spencer W. Kimball. Explain to him my lifelong delusion of becoming an apostle, how the words and blessings of others had encouraged it, and how I felt that I could not be free of this obsession until he simply told me I was wrong. President Kimball asked if I would like to have a blessing. As he laid his hands upon my head, I expected him to give me the comfort and the strength for, to overcome my aspirations for church office. Instead, Spencer W. Kimball promised me that one day God would call me as an apostle. 
After the blessing, President Kimball told me not to work for the office or, quote, to, try to curry favor, unquote, with church leaders, but just to live as I felt the Lord desired for me. There is no way I can logically explain that experience or its impact on me and on my wife, then or now. Uh, within two months, I went to Yale and in 1976 wrote a Ph.D. dissertation about the Mormon hierarchy. Years later, I spent four Saturdays in a row with Spencer W. Kimball and his wife Camilla in their home while I read his personal diaries and took notes. I never reminded him of the blessing he had given me six months before he became church president. However, he always introduced me to others as, quote, my Mexican, unquote. The same words. <laughs> he did. I speak German. I don't speak Spanish, too. It's, it's an embarrassment. The, the same words President Kimball whispered to me as he repeatedly kissed me the last time we were together before he was physically incapacitated. Shortly, um, shortly after G. Homer Durham's appointment as managing director of the LDS Historical Department in 1977, I also developed a curious working relationship with this general authority. He began restricting and impeding research for others in LDS archives almost immediately, and yet he seemed to respect my dogged determination to keep asking for sensitive materials. Once as I sat waiting to see the church archivist with some request slips in my hand for restricted documents, Elder Durham walked by, smiled, and gave me the clenched fist salute of the 60s radicals. <laughs> I could never figure him out. <laughs> I wrote him a 14-page, single-spaced memo summarizing my knowledge of post-manifesto polygamy and my intention to one day publish that information. At the same time, I sent similar letters to the First Presidency and had a 45-minute discussion in the home of, of uh, Gordon B. Hinckley with him uh, as well about the same topic. Nevertheless, for the next six years, Elder Durham continued to give me access to restricted documents concerning polygamy. Just days before his death, Elder Durham gave me access again to a First Presidency files, which I had explained were necessary to finalize a dialogue article that was upcoming on post-manifesto polygamy. Quote, Mike Quinn has helped us explain other problem areas, Elder Durham told the young church archivist Glenn Rowe. I hope he can help us here because this is a tough one, unquote. The article I published was simply a long version of what I had written Elder Durham six years earlier. But that is stepping ahead somewhat, and this is the last page. Whether by design or as one of life's little jokes, Apostle Boyd K. Packer was the general authority who interviewed me for joining BYU's history department. He lectured me for 45 minutes, the highlights of which were these statements. And I'm leaving out the misogynist example. I have a hard time with historians, Elder Packer said, because they idolize the truth. The truth is not uplifting. It destroys. Historians should tell only that part of the truth that is inspiring and uplifting, unquote. I spoke of balance, perspective, context. He just shook his head and said, you'll learn. I did. And as the saying goes, the rest is history. Thank you.
Um, I promise to try and be foolishly merciful with your time. Uh, I, I know that some of you are looking like it's been a long night. <laughs> um, I appreciate your attention. Um, I want to start out by thanking a couple of uh, groups of people who have allowed me to develop uh, some strains of thoughts in this talk that I'm going to share with you tonight. And the first group was um, the feminist group Voice at BYU, the first place where I had a free space to share what had happened to me at BYU and where I felt comfortable enough and nurtured enough that I could tell things that were very painful. Um, since then, um, the pain has lessened and the story has gotten easier to tell. Um, the Unitarian, the South Valley Unitarian Universalist Society also gave me forums to talk about this, and the women at Pilgrimage. And so I thank them for those places and those spaces where this talk has been able to um, take shape since I began speaking of my experience in March. Um, let me begin by introducing myself and by trying to give you a sense of who I am and what I believe in. Um, I, I know that many of you recognize my name, but um, I feel like, well, I, I feel like I have been much more talked about than I have talked, and I'm very um, grateful for this chance to be able to speak with you. I'll then move into a very brief retelling of my experience at BYU because I know that's what a lot of you are here for. But if you want all the really gory details, you should ask Brian and Brian <laughs> and, um, or wait for the books to come out. And then I'll finish by sharing what I've learned. Uh, there are several reasons why I haven't spoken much um, about my experience at BYU. The first was with all the activism with the student group voice, um, my policy and that of my co-advisor, Tommy Ann Roberts, was whenever the reporters called, whenever the newspaper called, whenever a TV talk show wanted somebody to speak, that it should always be the students who speak because it was a student organization. And we tried to get the students to be the ones who the administrators approached and the ones who um, did, who were responsible for the actions of that group because they were. So often in voice, we wanted the students to speak and, and tried not to take that central position. Then um, after uh, my incident with BYU, I had an attorney whose policy was that if I had something to say, I should say it in the hearing or say it in court. And so I waited a few months. And, and BYU's policy that kept me silent was that Cecilia should most definitely keep her opinions to herself and be an objective academic like the rest of us, free of the corruption of politics, made it difficult to speak. So I have been created and constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed until I feel there's very little of me in the images that most of you have of Cecilia Concharfar, the heretic, the feminist, the unorthodox, the challenger of patriarchy, and the in-your-face activist. <laughs> I have to confess that I didn't sing sweetly. I sang with vigor. <laughs> um, I, too, am the oldest daughter in a family of eight children, as you heard from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a working-class family. My dad was a mill worker and a construction worker. My brother was a mill worker and a truck driver. My brothers are still... Um, truck drivers, my sisters are waitresses. Um, I, in my life, well, three or four of us, I guess, are still Mormon. Um, the fourth, the one, is sort of vacillates. My dad never was, and my mom is fiercely, faithfully, eternally Mormon. 
Um, I myself am committed passionately to two things, two things that give me stories to live by, two things that give me a voice to speak, and a life that I feel blessed to be living, education and the Mormon church, especially feminist education, by the way, and I'll get to that in a a minute. First education, um, you would have to have grown up in Butler, Pennsylvania, to understand what I mean when I say my options were limited. Um, (laughs) And um, to have grown up in a wonderful family that encouraged everything I did, but knew very little about education and where it could take me. Um, I still get a kick out of how I always have to explain, th- explain things like, you know, I'm so excited, I got a fellowship. Oh, a fellowship is, um, <laughs> and I'm so excited, I just finished my master's thesis, and then a couple years later, I just finished my, my dissertation. Well, didn't you just write one of those? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it, was really, it's, it was a really wonderful family and a really giving family that, uh, that I am from, but it was, um, it was a place um, that knew very little about giving people options in education. And in my high school, um, things were worse than you could possibly imagine. I, as I told a group yesterday, never knew that, um, that I could do anything significant. It was a huge school, 1,010 in my graduating class. Never, I never had a class with under 40 people in it um, that I can remember and never felt in any way special or like I should... Um, pursue an an education from that atmosphere, although I got it from others. Um, So, but I did go to school. I came to BYU for a year, and um, as you you heard, it was a culture shock, and I um, retreated back to Pennsylvania. In fact, um, someday when you hear the whole story, um, you'll have to hear how painful that was, and and, um, how I, um, as a young woman, realized how few my options were, and decided that I was going to make more options. And... um, pretty literally had a nervous breakdown and started all over again from scratch. And when I started all over again, it was education. Emma, in fact. Somebody mentioned Emma tonight. Jane Austen novels and Louisa May Alcott novels and the idea that there were things out there for me to learn that brought me out of it. And I got an education at that great bastion of intellectualism, Slippery Rock University, which actually deserves to be much more well-known for football. (laughs) (laughs) And then, um, after working as a reporter for a few years, I started to get a feminist education, and that was a really different kind of education than I'd ever had before. And it it gave me language for the things I'd felt for a long, long time. And some of you have had the experience of reading, for example, Judith Federley, who says literature is political, and then starts to tell us why it's been painful to read The Great Gatsby and and The Scarlet Letter, and explains to us that um, women have been pretty much left out of the great literature of our canon, and how I had felt that, even while I love that literature still, and how her language gave me, gave my thoughts life gave me a voice. And my feminist education transformed me, thanks to Judith Federley, Bell Hooks, Annette Kolodny, Gloria Anseldu, and Nancy K. Miller, and all of my other favorite theorists. Now to the Mormon Church. I've explained to several of you as well that through the Mormon Church, I um, was able to have a vision of myself beyond what my community would allow me. Um, I tell my students sometimes that I still think that I should um, be living in a trailer court with lots of children running around and working, well, or if working at all, um, being a waitress or something uh, very unlike what I do now. And um, my sense of my own divinity 
my belief in myself, the knowledge that I have of my divine potential, comes from being a Mormon. And that I, like David and Mary and Joseph Smith, have personal moral integrity and agency. And that I can speak with God, and God can speak to me, and wants to. (laughs) Um, Those were important lessons for um, a little girl in a large family in a large school in a working-class town in Pennsylvania. Um, I have a sister, Elaine, two years younger than me, who never learned those lessons, and she was an alcoholic and died in a drunk driving accident when I was 21. After she died, I realized, and this was after the nervous breakdown and after Slippery Rock, I realized how limited women's opportunities were. And granted, many people have limited opportunities, but there were many ways in which our opportunities, our visions were limited because we were our female. I was determined that what happened to my sister, the lack of vision, the lack of options, wouldn't happen to anyone that I had access to and could love, that I would never, ever again stand idly by and let a woman's life, (laughs) I'm sorry, fritter away into meaninglessness. I would love women, our art, our music, our literature, our talk, our gossip, our conversation. I decided that I would see the, the, the divine potential in women that so many fail to notice, and that I would encourage that potential, that I would create spaces where women could grow, and I would share stories that would give shape to our lives and ideas that would give shape to our dreams. So I followed my heart, powered by my Mormonism and my feminism, and that's what I do. I should probably also add here, especially for my loving husband in the back of the room, that I also love men (laughs) and believe in your divine potential, especially since I have a little 18-month-old boy that I had a really hard time figuring why Heavenly Father sent me a little boy. But But I sure like him. (laughs) And... I believe in your divine potential as well, but so do a lot of other people. (laughs) So I have chosen to focus where I can do the most good because I am dangerous enough to really believe that I can change the world. So you won't often find me criticizing patriarchy. Surprise, surprise. That's not all feminists do. Or condemning literature by men for not being feminist enough. I never purposefully undermine the church or what I believe to be the inspired authority of its leaders. I am Mormon to my very core. I believe in Jesus Christ with a perfect brightness of hope. For me, no logic of my intellectual being can undermine or do justice to the power of the statement, I believe. Even though my, <clears throat> though my I believe has been rigorously questioned and interrogated many times in my life. So I want to get to what has happened to my beliefs in the last four years. So let me take a brief detour here through BYU. And let me also add that as I affirm my faith, um, I don't mean to affirm an orthodoxy that has caused a lot of people pain. And I hope that my continued participation in the Mormon church is seen for what it is. 
as a belief that I locate in Jesus Christ and that you won't, my friends, my brothers and sisters, who, who have been put in a position that this institution has caused them pain. I don't mean to be adding to that pain. I have so many students at BYU who have chosen to leave the church, and I don't want them to feel condemned by what I say. Okay. Um, first, you probably should know what my crimes are. <laughs> For I'm an activist, I'm a feminist, and a Mormon, and I believe with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich and others that those two items, or those two, well, I'm not an oxymormon, she says. You can be a Mormon and a feminist. And that the worst thing is that I act on my feminism. I am committed to social change, or in Mormon terms, to bringing about Zion. <laughs> <laughs> And I came to BYU expressly to do what I just expressed is the greatest desire of my heart, to affirm women's divine potential and to acknowledge that God speaks to us as well and to express that in literature and in the feminist theory that I teach. Um, I um, did uh, several things that incurred the ire of... Um, uh, some administrators and some members of the Board of Trustees and some members of the uh, radical right community in Utah and elsewhere. Um, and the greatest of these sins, well, I guess they first noticed that they should be noticing what Cecilia Conjar Farr does is when Voice did some really interesting activism around violence against women. And shortly after that, I was invited um, to uh, repeat... Um, positions I had taken in favor of choice for women on the issue of abortion, but against abortion, a position that I found was in harmony and that I worked out, I thought, in harmony with the church's statement on abortion. And I gave a speech, and the speech was reprinted, and the story, as I understand it, as it was repeated to me by Bruce Hafen, Todd Britch, and Rex Lee, was that as soon as I gave that... Oh, and Stan Albrecht as well. There was another one. Um, all administrators at BYU. When I gave that speech, um, somebody saw a news clip. One of the members of the Board of Trustees saw a news clip. This was, I guess, before the person who was there taking down everything I said got back with the speech because eventually, well, eventually, the next day, <laughs> they had a transcript of the speech, which I hadn't yet given to them. Um, but uh, that they were angry about my having given that speech and said that told, called the administration and said, fire her now. And the administration said, well, you know, thank you for your input, but we can't really do things that way. And then when the speech was reprinted, well, then I was called in and told that the church had a policy that no church employee, it, it changed, and nobody ever wrote it down, so I ne nobody ever quite got it the same from anybody who told it to me. No BYU faculty member and or no church employee can take a public pro-choice position. They read to me a statement that said that before the speech was reprinted. And I said, what an interesting policy. Um, if I'm supposed to be bound by this contractually in my employment at BYU, could you please give me a written copy of that? No, we're not prepared to release this statement yet. And um, I was led to believe that they would be prepared to release this statement and that when they did, or this is what I understood from my conversation, when they did release this statement, I would be obligated to live by that or leave the university. And um, I would have 
thought of the option of leaving the university. And in, in fact, as many of you heard Brian and Brian explain um, uh, about um, the let's see, AAUP, the American Association of University Professors' statement on academic freedom, that is that if a faculty has some limits to, a faculty member has limits to his or her academic freedom, those limits need to be written down, and then you are allowed to make them in a religious institution like BYU. But if they're not written down, if they're a policy that everyone is supposed to live by and no one knows, it's dishonest. Well, you all know that the story of BYU is um, they did eventually fire me. They fired me because um, members of the Board of Trustees told the administrators that it must happen. The administrators interfered with the with the interview process. Faculty members who were involved um, believed as um, Alan Dale Roberts wrote in a recent essay, any suggestion from the general authorities, prudent members know, should be taken as a commandment. And the, and the let's see, at, at the department level, I had an impressive scholarly record, an impressive teaching record, and some questions about my citizenship. When it got to the college level, I had bad articles and bad teaching and bad citizenship. And by the time it got to the university committee, I had no articles and horrible teaching and citizenship that was just too appalling to discuss. And um, the only difference in that time period was the interference of the the suggestive power and the interference of people who were not and should not have been involved in the faculty review process. So um, my scholarship disappeared. My student evaluations were suddenly testament only to my power as a dangerous charismatic leader out to undermine my students' faith. My collegiality was characterized by negative reports of two incidents where I had spoken my mind openly and honestly without anger, in fact, without much emotion, which were, of course, reformulated to demonstrate my movement from difference to contention, from discourse to divisiveness, and from conversation to confrontation. I interpret that as meaning I wasn't nice. Um, After I read through my file last summer and read some of the painful comments, some of which can, can't be more kindly labeled as anything but lies. Um, I felt especially uh, betrayed by my department chair, who had had one-on-one discussions with me in my office and his office. He, I bore my testimony to him. He knew what I was doing. <laughs> but it was more important for him to obey his leaders, and he betrayed me. <laughs> that was very difficult. Other people who were cruel to me, I sort of expected cruelty from because they had never been anything but. Um, in my style, which my associate Tommy and Roberts tells me is really a poor way of dealing with emotional difficulty, I decided not to think about it anymore, and I just cried a lot. Um, so um, here's where I am now. I've decided that I will think about it some, and mostly I'll try to write about it. I have um, a quote from Terry Tempest Williams that has been my mantra this summer. Writing becomes an act of compassion toward life, the life we so often refuse to see, because if we look too closely or feel too deeply, there may be no end to our suffering. But words empower us, move us beyond our suffering, and set us free. This is the sorcery of literature. We are healed by our stories. I thank you for this opportunity to share my story. Let me tell you now what I think I've learned from this experience. Um, The hardest part of the experience was that I learned that people who had caused me the most harm are also people who have done others, including some of my dearest friends, a lot of good. I I wanted to hate them fiercely and passionately, and I called them Satan on many occasions. 
but they weren't. <laughs> These were the kind of guys you go to church with every Sunday, your stake presidents and your bishops. Um, I've realized, except for a few blatant exceptions who I still insist on calling Satan, that they are all, in fact, good people. So what do you do with that when good people make bad things happen? When their good trees bear bad fruit. That doesn't fit in the parable. I learned a long time ago on a local level, and some of you um, who grew up in the East with the dearth of male leadership that many of us had in our home warrants can testify it was a good lesson to learn that leaders are fallible. And two, number two, my testimony could survive that knowledge, that my testimony was not about whether or not my leaders were infallible. So... um, I still say it would do all you Western Mormons a whole lot of good to talk more about the humanness of our leaders. Um, My testimony, four years later, is still the same one that I had when I was baptized when I was eight years old and listened to the missionaries and felt the Spirit for the first time. It's based on Jesus Christ. I know that God lives, that Joseph Smith restored Christ's gospel, that God communicates to us still through the scriptures and through the power of the Holy Ghost. I believe that people who are believing Mormons should feel it their responsibility to practice always hearing the still small voice so that we can recognize it. It is our responsibility always relentlessly to exercise that gift. As Jean England and Margaret Toscano and others have written, it was no accident that Eve chose in the garden between two paradoxical commandments and that one of them was to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The action of making that choice was what revealed truth to her and Adam. It is in choosing that we learn. It is in exercising our divine gifts that we become divine. When Adam and Eve exercised their divine gift, they rejoiced. Now the atonement could happen. As Lehi says in the Book of Mormon, we have become free forever, knowing good from evil, to act for ourselves and not be acted upon. To act, to choose, to think, to exercise agency. This is our gift, and this is our divinity. It is also our humanness, because inherent in the ability to choose is, of course, the ability to make really bad choices. I do that, and I think I'm a pretty good person. So I can live with what happened to me at BYU because I rejoice in my humanness and in my divinity together. And I rejoice in the humanness and divinity of my colleagues and my church leaders. I don't expect them to be more than human, yet I hope for them to be divine. That's how I love the people I love most fiercely. That's how I hope to love my enemies. What I would give to all of you as I leave, if I could leave you with only one message, and especially the women... This is the message. Know your divinity. Believe in it. Exercise it. Embrace it. But when you see humanness, know it too and embrace it. Learn to love it. It's you and it's me and it's all of us. I have this um, passage from Zora Neale Hurston's Dust Tracks on the Road that I really love where she's talking about what it's like to be an African-American woman riding a train and seeing African-American people doing things that embarrass and humiliate her because they reinforce the stereotypes. And she looks at these people and she doesn't push them away. She sees them as her people. And in her shame and embarrassment, there's pride in, in her unity with them as her people. And I've felt that many times, that pain, that embarrassment, that joy, as I look at other people who are my Mormon people. 
because ever since I joined the Thar family that goes way back to the beginnings of Mormonism, because since the day I was baptized, you are proudly my people. And they, even the days that... I think we'll sing verses 1, 5, and 8, although it's against uh, my better musical judgment to cut verses from a hymn. We'll do 1, 5, and 8. Heavenly Father, we pause at the end of this uh, session with gratitude in our hearts for insightful, articulate expressions of faith. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the words we've heard, for the lives we've uh, heard traced. We would ask, Heavenly Father, thy spirit to be with our presenters and in their spiritual journeys to increase their faith, and to have charity in all of their adversities. We're uh, reflecting now, Heavenly Father, on the words that we've heard, and we would ask that our own thoughts would be clearer and more precise, and that our behavior can be ethical and kind, and that the way we treat each other will be 
better and more thoughtful. We ask that these pillars that we've heard tonight can unite with the truths of thine own gospel, and we'd ask thy hand in protecting us now as we depart, and we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.